This is an ABC podcast. Mmm, I can smell something cooking. Yum! Oh, what is it? Well, you know, it's nice to have a night at home, so curry it is. A curry for the country. <laughs> Go and have a. Hey! <laughs> I'm going to tell the prime minister that one. A curry for the. <laughs> a curry for the country. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, well, strong curry, strong economy, stronger future. Hang on. What's wrong with me? That doesn't make any sense. Curry doesn't relate to the economy. Must be the raw chicken affecting my brain. Stop everything. (laughs) Hello. Culture moves fast. Stop everything. And how do you like your curry? Chunky, cooked, strong? Forget unemployment rates, interest rates, cash rates. Did you know that the strength of a person's curry is the key measure of a nation's economic health and prosperity? If that is the case, what do we make of the chunderous white, finger quotes, korma posted on the Prime Minister's social media accounts? This has been the talk of the week, Benjamin Law. The Facebook comments are still flowing. Culture moves fast and so would our intestines potentially if we ate Scott Morrison's curry that he posted online in a social media post that has really gone viral. Um, Oh, wow. Nice use of the word viral. (laughs) (laughs) And this was a post that, like with most politicians, aimed to frame and sell Scott Morrison as the Australian everyman, the guy who likes cooking curry for his family, a curry for the country, He posted it on Sunday, and let's just recap what the post was. It was a Sri Lankan tamarind eggplant and okra curry and a classic chicken korma. Classic to whom? I'm not sure. (laughs) And as you've known, Beverly, the reactions have been pretty fast and wild. Many labelled it, quote, a cursed photo. Many Australians, especially those with South Asian heritage, were, let's just put it mildly, repelled. They Mm. were absolutely repelled. And many Australians who value basic food hygiene, we're upset. Look, I don't know. Maybe it was I feel like chicken tonight, chicken korma type Uh situation, just from the color, the texture. Like, I'm no expert in South Asian cooking, but I am fond of it. And I've had a delicious korma and it is neither that color nor texture. You mentioned people of South Asian heritage being especially repelled and upset. I have read so much commentary, even about the garnishes being inappropriate on that dish. Mm -hmm. There also has been discourse that Australian politicians are not very good at memes. Obviously, a politician's meme-making ability is by no means any measure of their ability to govern a country well. So let's just put that out there. It shouldn't matter. Mm -hmm. But I would say this curry has become a huge meme. People are reacting and people are talking about it. That's pretty good and a measure of internet virality? Well, let's do what they do in detective shows. Zoom in. I love it. Enhance. And what one internet user, Darcy Vermaud, posted on Facebook after this post from Scott Morrison in the comments was, lovely piece of raw chicken center right of frame. Enjoy. And that comment got so many reactions because people noticed exactly the same thing, that the chicken in the middle of the curry looked disturbingly uncooked to the point where Scott Morrison himself commented back saying, I can reassure you the chicken was cooked. 
Can you imagine being in the middle of a federal election campaign and someone on your social media team is deployed to reply about the state of a piece of chicken? Well, this is arguably Scott Morrison's kind of sweet spot, right? He markets himself in a way that's very particular. You can say what you want about Scott Morrison as a politician, as an elected public servant, as the prime minister. But in election mode, he's usually quite lethal when he's on the campaign. And that's a lot to do about communicating with who he is as not just a politician, not just a public servant, but as a human being, Beverly. Sean Kelly wrote a really interesting book called The Game. And there's actually quite a bit of discourse in that book about how Scott Morrison wields curry, so to speak, in order to frame and communicate what kind of a guy he is. He cooks curry. He loves a particular kind of food. He only cooks it once a week because he's like the average Australian man. There's a lot of interesting, very particular semiotics here. But if we dig even deeper He's got a vexed kind of problematic relationship with his symbolism here too, right? Absolutely. In particular, when you note that the prime minister, who was a former immigration minister, says that he has cooked a Sri Lankan curry. I think a lot of people's mm-hmm. minds go back to the fact that many asylum seekers from Sri Lanka were turned back on boats under his watch. So this cognitive dissonance of a man who loves a Sri Lankan curry, but not necessarily people from Sri Lanka seeking asylum, that's a tough one to balance in the mind. I think that has been weighing on a lot of people's minds this week. Now, the curry discourse in this country is strong, it's deep, it's pungent. Can we just take a moment to rest on the caption that went along with this photo of the curries? Quote, strong curry, full stop. Strong economy, full stop. Stronger future, full stop. What is the connection between the strength of one's curries? By the way, a korma is mild. <laughs> and what a vindaloo in there, mate. <laughs> Rogan, josh it up. And a strong economy and a strong future. Can you, Dr. Benjamin Law, help me break down what is happening here? Because I don't get it. Well, it's certainly words. They are all certainly (laughs) words in an order. And maybe this is one where we need to do a stop everything collaboration with the party room here, because if you want to deep dive into the analysis, you know, a lot of people are saying that the election campaign this year in particular seems to not really focus that strongly on policy from either of the major parties with how they're approaching this. So what does it become? It becomes a conversation of optics. And as much as it pains me to just talk about the semiotics of Scott Morrison's curry post, that's what the conversation kind of has to be when that's all they're kind of giving us. There's also this thread of the conversation where people are saying, hey, everybody, the curry discourse is a distraction. Mm -hmm. I'm intrigued by that comment because I think to myself, distraction from what? The federal election campaign? You know, if you zoom even further back, I think there's an argument that the entire federal election campaign is theater and theatrics, right? There's six weeks of very constrained campaigning where everything goes on hold and people go around the country and try to convince undecided voters. People, I would argue, voters can make up their minds in the period prior to the six years, if you are observing. So I actually think the entire theatrics of the campaign is controversially a distraction from governing. Mm. But I think like in the scheme of the campaign, is the curry a distraction or is it basically a watermark of where we are at in our culture? 
One of the things I like to do when trying to figure out what's actually going on, Beverly, is to go through the chronology of something. You know, uh-huh. several years ago, I wrote a quarterly essay about safe schools. And one of the journalistic practices that I learned from other people who'd written quarterly essays is break down the timeline. What does the chronology mean and what does it reveal? How do we connect the dots? Should we go through a bit of a curry timeline when it comes to Scott Morrison? There's a strong footprint of curry on the internet emanating from the Prime Minister. This is a factual thing that we can track. If Scott Morrison was a Marvel superhero and his superpower was curry, right, a lot of people would think that his origin story (laughs) starts in 2015 with the episode of Kitchen Cabinet with Annabelle Crabb that has become slightly infamous because he made scomoses there, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Another South Asian dish. And as a lot of people pointed out later, the context of this was only the year before in 2014, Australia had sent 41 asylum seekers back to Sri Lanka, including Tamils who were still facing violence by the Sri Lankan military at that stage. So for him to actually bring Sri Lankan food to the table felt a little bit obscene to a lot of viewers, right? Then in 2018, the strawberry curry video. Take your mind back to 2018. It seems like a decade ago. It was just a couple of years ago. And remember, there was that horrible stuff happening where needles were being found in punnets of strawberries. And strawberry farmers really suffered because there was a widespread fear of buying strawberries. So the prime minister posted a social video. Remember he used to do the pieces to camera, the walk and the talks that lasted for a little while, kind of faded Mm -hmm. away during the pandemic. So he posted this walk and talk video. And there's just one little bit at the end, which had a few eyebrows raised, heads scratching. But for those who go on YouTube or think it's a big lark to go on and, and stick pins in fruit, it's not funny, it's not right, it's causing real distress and harm in our community and it's got to stop. So we're going to be passing laws within the next 24 hours to send a very clear message, don't do it. But what you can do as Australians is buy some strawberries, just like normal. This weekend, I'm making a curry, Jen's making a pav, and that means that we can support our industry and help them get back on their feet. Anyway, got to go to question time. Cheers. The sequence of those words, buy strawberries, I'm going to make a curry, Jen, his wife, is going to make a pav, made a lot of people wonder what's going into that curry. Strawberries? (laughs) Well, it also makes me question what constitutes a national crisis that warrants a quick changing of laws and what doesn't. When we look over the last four years, a lot of political analysis and discourse and conversations. We don't have time for that. We don't have time for that because we got more curry to talk about. (laughs) In August 2020, there was another curry dinner photo. And this was an incredibly engaged with post about lockdown and how he hoped everyone was getting through it. It was a very humanizing moment for him online. And then you cut to this year, February 2022, And he's on 60 Minutes. Of course, he's playing the ukulele for Karl Stefanovic, a point in Australian TV history that probably gives a lot of us sonic trauma. Also, making curry there as well. This is a part of his brand, his persona. He is the curry king. Part of a brand, a potent brand. We skipped over curry for the country. Well, we heralded it at the beginning, but probably one of the most viral upon viral moments that are spinning off from the curry persona of the Prime Minister of Australia is the curry for the country moment from then Federal Employment Minister Michaelia Cash back in 2020. It is imprinted in our brains. I tried my best to do an impression, but really, let's hear 
the OG. Nothing's quite like it. Go and have a curry for the country. Hey, <laughs> I'm going to tell the Prime Minister that one. A curry for the country. I love it. Very enthusiastic about curry, but also very enthusiastic about curry-based slogans mm. and being able to tell the Prime Minister that. Is that a little bit of an insight about what curries favour with the leader <laughs> of this nation? Oh, Beverly. <laughs> I Look, did it. I make- did it. What should we make of all of this? All I'll say is that this moment you might not think is necessarily significant, but it's part of a pattern and it's all significant enough to have made the world press. This has been covered in depth in the Indian press in the middle of an Australian election campaign. That's all I have to say about that now. Okay. Picking up my jaw off the floor. I was not aware of that update, but extraordinary. And now that I think about it, quite unsurprising. And I'm going to go and look up some of those articles and see what they say about that korma. Now, Ben, it's my turn to shine now, though, because just to extend this conversation a little bit further and get my own back, finally, justice on Stop Everything. Last week, you presented, Dr. Law, your dossier of full frontal nudity. This was a Stop Everything background briefing crossover, or it should have been, really, because that's how hard (laughs) I deep-dived into schlongs. Anyway, this curry conversation has got me thinking about politicians and food. You know, the old kind of cliche is that politicians and babies, great combo. So I posit, I suggest, that politicians and food, not always a good match and things to be wary of in campaigns because food and the way you eat food, the way you respond to food could seriously lift your fortunes or it could tank you. So this week I present to you my dossier, (laughs) Questionable Moments in Food and Politics. I'm going to go all the way back to the last century. The year is 1992. U.S. President George H.W. Bush visits the country of Japan. Mm -hmm. During a state banquet... He vomits into the lap of Japanese Prime Minister Kichi Miyazawa and also faints. It's on YouTube. The US president vomited in the lap of another head of a nation state. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so that was infamous at the time, back in the 90s. Right, you like to tease me about being a Gen X, but this time it has come in handy. All right. (laughs) Okay. What about other Australian incidents? I'm going to bring it back home now. 2007. Mm -hmm. You know, this is food adjacent, but something was eaten, so it falls into the broad church of politicians and food. Kevin Rudd is caught on tape eating his own earwax during question time. And he did acknowledge it in a subsequent interview that 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 is what happened. He did. And a lot of people were repelled. At the same time, I also acknowledge that it is vegan because he would have (laughs) given his own consent to eat that. And I think largely a sustainable sustainable, food. (laughs) Absolutely. A self-producing, sustainable Food product for when you want a quick bite on the road. Farm yourself. This is an infamous one. 2015, Tony Abbott visiting Tasmania, bites into a raw onion, skin and all. This is like a fever dream of an incident. Like even when you say that, there are so many layers to this (laughs) onion story that I can't get over. Like one, it was our Prime Minister eating this raw onion. Two, it wasn't just the fact that he was biting into a raw onion, but the fact that he bit into it with the skin on. And thirdly, he did it again later on. It was not a one-off incident. He is a serial offender. I feel like we haven't delved psychologically enough into 
what actually happened there? Well, That's he, another background. He's a very kind of athletic, wiry kind of figure, and onions maybe give vitality, right? We come from cultures where food is regarded as medicine. Perhaps the strength and vitality of the onion was something that he was going for. And again, his version of Chinese medicine, uh, right? Sure, better than a shark's fin. I have to say that. <laughs> they say that Australian politicians are bad at making memes. To which I answer with raw onion. Okay. Yeah, they are a meme. It's coming on up to a decade, and it still lives. I'm going to go back across the ocean, several actually. UK Labour leader Ed Miliband is photographed awkwardly eating a bacon sandwich. How and awkwardly are we talking about? You know that face you make when now. your face stretches out and you're just biting in? and It's one of those faces that you don't realise you make until you see a photograph of yourself, and oh, it's unfortunate. Yeah. It does capture the phenomenon where you turn on the camera on your phone and it's mm. still facing Accidental you. Accidental selfie. Yeah. Yeah. The cruelty of it it's is, very is apparent in this Google image well, search. Well, apparently, that I'm right it's now. credited with cruelly dashing his political future. He's, you know, many years since the UK Labour leader. I'm going to come back to Australia now, the place we call home. Bill Shorten, then Labour leader, eats sausage and bread. Classic Australian political food, right? However, he chose to eat it in a manner which was confounding to most. He ate it side on. And again, those photos live on in infamy. I mean, I understand the kind of differing approaches to eating a meat pie. Some people eat the top first, then they scoop out the bottom. I like to eat it like a one whole contained thing. But eating a sausage and bread sideways is, I don't know, mathematically troubling to me. You'll eventually end up with two pieces. If you... <laughs> but in all of this, Beverly, we have not talked about the urban legend that surrounds the current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. The conversation has gone circular. Yeah. That's right. Because this is, I guess, food adjacent. The urban legend surrounding Scott Morrison to the point that even if you summon the words Engadine Maccas, you know what the story is. It has been alleged that the Prime Minister of Australia soiled himself on a visit to Engadine McDonald's, has gone on to be so infamous and gained such traction that Scott Morrison himself actually had to address these rumours on radio. Had to, I don't know about that, but chose to. I'm going to go with that set of words. He called into Kyle and Jackie O's show on Kiss FM, huge, massive FM radio show, right? And right near the end of the interview, as the hosts are getting ready to sign off, the PM jumped in and he said this. Hey, can I clear up one thing? W not the Macca's thing. The Macca's thing? From ages ago. The Macca's yeah. thing, right, yeah. It is the biggest urban myth ever. So it's that not even poo, true. That you poo your pants at the Engadine McDonald's? It's complete and utter rubbish. I found the thing, I found the whole thing incredibly amusing. <laughs> and we've always joked about it uh, amongst our team here as I've driven past it on occasion. Oh, and I say, no. do you want to pop in for a big Mac? Um, oh my God, they die. But it is absolute and total rubbish. Really? Oh, well, how disappointing. You I feel like you wanted to come on to clear that up. <laughs> Beverly, listening back to the audio, you are absolutely correct. He didn't have to own up to it. I guess he's the Prime Minister. He sets the agenda. He wanted to set the agenda and he brought it up voluntarily. A very haunting moment in Australian politics. He sets a discourse we lead. I mean, I'm tempted to say that we're loving it, but that wouldn't be very partisan. So I'm saying... We're loving it in a way that is nonpartisan. And if any other leaders of other political parties wish to raise the urban legends on FM radio shows, we will devote equal time to that. 
I feel like we found ourselves ankle deep in a discourse that we're trying to extricate ourselves from. So what I'd like to talk about is fashion. Oh, F-A-R-S-H-U-N, fashion. We do love the fashion. And we do love fashion at the Met Gala. The Met Gala happened on Monday, the 2nd of May, New York Times, which is when the creme de la creme of Hollywood and celebrity and of public figureheadedness <laughs> comes out <laughs> to display their wares. And the theme this year was gilded glamour to mark the opening of the exhibit in America, an anthology of fashion. Beverly, you watched the outfits come out live what were you taken by and what were you kind of like meh about? The Met Gala is, I think, one of the most fun days on the internet because you get to stream the gowns and take in everybody's reactions. And I love beauty, Benjamin, mm-hmm. and it is a feast for the eyes. It is a visual feast. It's, it is also abnormal. It's a celebration of ridiculous wealth privilege and elitism. And this year, it was also offset in some timing because it happened at the same time that Politico published a leaked draft of a Supreme Court majority decision overturning Roe versus Wade, which enshrines abortion rights in the United States. So it is a very hectic time. And it may seem flippant to be talking about the gowns, but talk about the gowns we will while also holding that dissonance in the back of our minds. I mean, quite a contrast, but between those two things happening on the same day, arguably the story of where America is right now. Yes, totally. Trying to get back to normal, embracing their wealth, but also very, very concerning movements. Gilded glamour, a theme that is very open to interpretation. And I think in terms of other themes of yesteryear, somewhat basic, somewhat easy, maybe. Mm -hmm. And and fair enough, you know, you're coming back to the first Monday in May, you just want to celebrate in your glory and maybe have a brief that is easy and open to interpretation. So there were a lot of capes, so Mm -hmm. many capes, men and women. Imagine putting on a luxurious designer cape. You would feel fabulous. There were a lot of corsets and there were also for the men, I think, really reading Great Gatsby into this brief. A lot of Mm -hmm. men in tailcoats and wide lapels. I'm a little less interested in that. I think that that is kind of boring. Like, oh, gilded glamour. What are you going to do? Let's do Gatsby. Let's have tails. I say it's the Met Gala. Push yourself, everybody. I'm going to run through a few of the notables. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's start with uh, our auntie, Michelle Yeoh. Resplendent in a Green Cape by designer Prabal Gurung. Beautiful. The way it connected into one garment. I love the way Jamie Lee Curtis, her hot dog lover from everything, everywhere, all at once, <laughs> raised her up and called her her bae. The Kardashian family was there in full effect to mixed effect. Let's talk about the most famous Kardashian first. Did you see her dress? Yeah, Kim Kardashian certainly made a splash. She was summoning an image of yesteryear in a very, very iconic American way. She was in Marilyn Monroe's happy birthday, Mr. President dress. The moment you say those words, you picture Marilyn Monroe at that podium singing in that breathy happy birthday to JFK. And we know now, history has told us, that they were involved in a relationship while he was married to Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. Kim Kardashian, that is a dress that probably belongs in a museum under lock and key. You know, Marilyn Monroe had to be sewn into that dress. That is a dress. She is undeniably a cultural force. Beverly, I have a lot of thoughts and I have a lot of internal feelings about Oscar Isaac in a kilt. Oh. I mean, just those words next to each other 
makes me feel interesting things. It is a moment, and I think Oscar Isaac embracing fashion and being playful with the fact that he has a strong fandom slash standom that wants to see him embrace his they handsomeness want to peek and under celebrate that kilt. it. Absolutely. And we are here to celebrate it and maybe peek with him. There was another moment with Cody Smith-McPhee on the red carpet. Now, Cody Smith-McPhee, Australian actor, was nominated for an Oscar for Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. His look raised eyebrows, a lot of ambivalence around what he wore, jeans, white T-shirt, jewels, but also long red gloves. Now, all of these were fashionable moments. It wasn't just stuff that he bought off the rack. And yet he also looked like someone who was about to birth a calf. So I don't know if that was a response to his most recent role in Jane Campion's film or, as other people said, maybe a bit of a miss. Someone who is about to birth a calf, someone who is about to do a lot of dishes, someone who's about to debone <laughs> a chicken. I mean, that's kind of the effect that these gloves are giving us. I like it because it's unusual, bold and daring and taking a chance. When everybody is getting glammed up, and men are showing up, like I said, looking like penguins. Here's a guy who's wearing elbow-length gloves, jeans with no belt, and a button-up. And it reminds me, again, here I go with the Gen X knowledge and memory, Sharon Stone, 1996 Oscars. She wore a turtleneck from The Gap to the Academy Awards, and that was a moment, and that was what this was giving me, the IDGAF moment. But it was great. Hey. Maybe you're changing my mind because as you say that, I'm now thinking this is a guy, if he can debone a chicken, he can probably prepare one as well, which is more He'll than we can say, arguably. A delicious chicken korma. <laughs> we circle back. Always recalling. We're almost stand-up comedians there. No, we're just hacks. Let me just name a few other moments of gorgeousness on the red carpet of the Met Gala. I'm also going to come back to the Kardashians just for a moment because Kris Jenner appeared to channel Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis in an off-the-shoulder gown. So that's an interesting psychological moment for me. Kim Kardashian as Marilyn Monroe, Kris Jenner as Jackie O. The rest of the Kardashian clan showed up en masse and it was like a cacophony of fashion moments all in the one frame. Kylie Jenner in particular, she didn't do too well on the Rotten Tomatoes scale of showing up in like a bridal gown, backwards baseball cap, and like a net over her face. Just even those things, even if you haven't seen the pictures, doesn't sound correct. There is First Nations model Kwana Chasing Horse. Talk about a subversive reminder of what it is to be American and what American fashion is. It was a haute couture gown. Prabal Goring made it, but very many references to her First Nations culture, and she looked stunning. I loved that. Jodie Turner-Smith, married to the luckiest man in the world, Joshua Jackson, a fellow Canadian, showed up in a jeweled, plunging, cut-out one-piece and peach train, and her husband, Joshua Jackson, entails. That's okay. He really, in that situation, does need to step back and let her shine. You know, it was sad. We didn't have the usual showstoppers of Billy Porter, Lady Gaga, Rihanna. You know, when you talk about the triumvirate of the Met Gala, I think those three belong in the Hall of Fame. They were not there this year for various reasons. Blake Lively, one of the co-hosts, did step in and have a moment with her outfit conversion. I think every Met Gala needs an outfit conversion. Blake Lively served that with her bow that undid and then the entire gown changed colors and it was jeweled mm. and that was great. Those are a few things that piqued my interest, Benjamin Law. We mightn't have gotten Billy Porter, Lady Gaga or Rihanna, but you know what we got? Cardi B showing up in an outfit made entirely of gold chains. Yes. And Lizzo showing up with her flute and playing it. Let's go! Let's go this way! <laughs> 
Yeah, more woodwind on the red carpet, I say. I'm so glad you brought that up because that really was a wonderful moment and the crowds cheering, Lizzo, Lizzo, Lizzo. Yeah, I'm going to take my clarinet to the Logies. <laughs> I will take my oboe to the Walkleys. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, we need to talk. So I've banned Benjamin Law from the <laughs> studio for this one so we won't be oppressed by his toxic and ever-present masculinity. And in his place, I've got Yumi Steins, host of the hit ABC podcast, Ladies, We Need to Talk All to Myself. Hi, Yumi. Hi, Welcome babe. back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you. Congratulations on six seasons and counting of Ladies, We Need to Talk. That's Pretty significant. That's been a, an excellent innings for you, and it's still going. It is. We've run as long as The Sopranos, and we even have our own book. So that's how important we are. Take that <laughs> cultural mainstay of the media landscape. Now, season six, you're focusing on sex. Yes. So you have covered sex a fair bit in past episodes and past seasons. What's different about this season's approach? Well, usually we sprinkle the sex through like hundreds and thousands on top of a cupcake, but this time we're <laughs> um we're kind of having the whole cupcake is sex. So uh, that's pretty exciting. And it's not all like, you know, fun things about fanny farts or anything like that. It's more uh, let's take a look at the huge spectrum that exists within the ideas of sex um and have a bit of fun in there, which is really cool. So we talk about things like sex and disability, um, asexuality, which is sort of like sex but without the sex, um, the large cohort of women uh, of whom I'm meeting more each day, it would seem, who become lesbians later in life. So we talk to um, a group of lesbians who are later in life lesbians and find out what, what was going on there and what is the science behind changing sexualities. That sounds fascinating. And episode one really starts with a bang, <laughs> pardon the pun, about sex. You talk about swinging, and in that first episode, you visited a sex club. Here's what that sounded like when the owner, Jess, gave you a tour. So you've got, like, the shower space in there, um, and then you've got, like, your beds, um, the canopies on them, just to sort of give a bit of privacy, but we do also have provide all the safety needs, so condoms, lubes, dams, and clean sheets. Down here's the audio room. Okay, so at the far end of the room, there's this huge bed. It's like two really big beds pushed together. Could fit easily six or so people on there. Jess, how many people have been on there? Like, what's the maximum? <laughs> um, I've seen probably 40 people trying yes! to get onto that one bed. <laughs> that's amazing. And I also love the detail of the clean sheets because I think that's not a guarantee if you just go home with somebody that you meet at a bar. You are not guaranteed clean sheets. So I appreciate that sex club for doing that. When you were visiting that sex club and, you know, going into the environment of swinging, 
Did you find yourself changing your mind at all about your perception of what that particular sexual lifestyle is all about? Oh, definitely, Bev, definitely. So I think there's a perception of swinging that it's a bit seedy, that it's desperate people. They kind of smell like nicotine ashtrays and, you know, bad scotch whiskey or something, brill cream, Um, and they wear a lot of polyester. And there really is that perception of also having to sort of participate if you don't want to. So having somebody sort of pressing up against you and you you are forced to oblige in the swinging scene. And honestly, it is not like that at all. First of all, the nicotine thing is just my imagination, but the consent conversations are really, really active and ongoing, which is exactly what we want to model in vanilla sex, but it probably happens more in swinging circles than, you know, in your, in your regular mainstream circles. So that was super interesting. But just walking through that club, you could kind of hear, I think, the atmosphere of it. When I was recording with Jess, the owner, it was empty and they were waiting to open the doors. So the doors opened at two or something and we were there about 15 minutes prior. But it was so crazy how keyed up I felt. You know, I I just felt this crackling electricity in the air of what was going to happen that afternoon and what was possible and the sense that actually almost anything is possible. And it was a daytime event. That's what I think is... Amazing. Now, in the series, you speak to a lot of women. Mm-hmm. And what I notice about your conversations on ladies is that they are such intimate topics. You know, there's a conversation in that first episode where you talk to a woman and get her to open up about what it's like to watch her husband have sex with a younger more attractive woman. That's a very vulnerable thing to be open with. After all these years of doing ladies, Is there a particular approach you take to getting women to speak so comfortably and open up to you like that? I like the question because I think it has an inherent compliment towards me in it. (laughs) So thank you. Um, I think people have always been really confiding towards me. So I hear a lot of stuff that other people might find surprising. And I think it's because I'm fairly hard to shock. I'm also pretty accepting and I'm not a gossip. So they kind of trust that their stories aren't going to go any further. But this situation in a recording studio is different because the story is definitely going for broadcast. So I think the thing we did with Ladies We Need to Talk is just really work on making people understand that there's no right or wrong. Whether you're talking about your sexual preferences, you know, your sexual lifestyle or some weird thing you've got growing off a private part, it's really actually totally okay and we're really not here to judge. So once people sense that and trust it, then they trust us with their very, very precious stories. And after six seasons of going deep on so many issues dear to the lives of women, what have you learned and been the most surprised by? Mm. We've learned a lot about shame, I think. That's probably the headline to this answer. Shame is the currency that keeps women underfoot. And the less shame we feel about lots of things, but often our bodies or our sexual health, then the better off we are. We're better off physically, but we're also unshackled by having to conceal these elements of ourselves, which can take a lot of work, you know, mental labour as well as physical. So 
shame is generated by society and cultural expectations, religion, parents, you know, everything, but it's also maintained by us. We keep it going internally. So we can start working on ourselves pretty easily. Working on society, culture and our parents, that's going to take a bit of work and maybe generations, but coming at it from ourselves, and I think that's why it lends itself so well to podcast because you tuck those earbuds in or you're in the privacy of your car, you're listening to Ladies We Need to Talk and all that internal work you can start then and there. Are there any topics that you haven't covered yet but that you want to? Oh, there's so many. I mean, I'd love to talk about <laughs> the ecstatic feeling that you get when you quit your job. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if you've ever done that, but this <laughs> eruption, it's like fireworks of freedom bursting out of your chest. That is a great thing to talk about. We did anal sex a couple of years ago and we're rebooting that this season just because it's Rebooting a, anal sex. Uh-huh, yeah, did you like that? <laughs> just because it, that still continues to be a real taboo and, you know, it's surprisingly tricky to talk about. It should just be all fun and fart jokes, but it's actually, we probably need to handle this gently and lube it up and go slowly. <laughs> I see where they're going there, Yumi. Just on the topic of shame a little mm. bit, is the origin of the shame, does it come from women ourselves? Does it come from external forces? Why do women grapple with this so much? Yeah. A good example to apply the question to is vagina versus vulva. Why do we say, then he went and punched me right in the vagina when he actually punched you right in the vulva, right? I'm thinking about playground stuff, not domestic violence. Sorry if that's a bad example. But we often misname our body parts because there's shame around those words. There's shame in saying vulva, like as though vulva is a criminal word and we're not allowed to say it here on the radio or here on a podcast. Shame in vagina and knowing exactly what that means in terms of what body part you're referring to. So the shame is, it's just coming at us from multiple directions. We're shamed because we weren't taught properly at school. We're shamed because our friends have the wrong language. Our parents did the nurse. Everybody around us is kind of in agreement. This is too taboo for us to actually name it correctly. And thus it goes on and on and on. And every time I say vulva, when previously I would have said vagina, I feel my mouth struggling to get the right V word out. It's like, okay, I'm having to undo years of conditioning. Yeah. Now you touched on the body and women and these kind of very difficult conversations. I feel like you know, we are, I hate to bring the mood down, we are in the midst of a political campaign. Mm. And there have been some current conversations around women and women's bodies, in particular, a uh, conversation about transgender women in sport. And this debate in feminism about who gets to identify as a woman and that impact. That's a very live subject. Is that something that piques your interest as a conversation topic for ladies to take on? I don't think so, to be honest, because trans women are women. And so in our podcast, we've always included trans voices really without much remark. I mean, definitely the trans women we include sometimes want to be identified as trans women. But I just think that actually, I feel like the conversation's done. Like trans women are women. So come in, be part of the conversation. These fringe lunatic groups who are trying to exclude trans women from the conversation or from being allowed to identify as women, I really think they need to be given less oxygen, not more. Mm. We need to talk about the ladies. We need to talk empire, media <laughs> empire, because you alluded to it before. But yeah. along with Claudine Ryan, who's a co-creator of the podcast, you have written a book based on the show. It came out late last year. 
Back in the day when you were approached to do a thing called a podcast, did you ever imagine that it would still be going and that there would be a book that would be birthed from the process? Not at all, Bev. Like this is such a huge huge thrill for me. The book is a beautiful artifact. It's got stories, diagrams, first-hand accounts, and really fantastic interviews with professors and other experts in their fields of profession. Six seasons of Ladies We Need to Talk. It's actually heartwarming and so validating and so thrilling that there are so many women that want to hear their stories told back and reflected back to them. Yeah, it's an interesting progression, isn't it? That you've gone from digital media and you've gone to the dead tree media. That's an interesting trajectory in terms of like how something evolves. <laughs> I know. And we're doing Sydney Writers Festival too. So we're doing the live media as well, the analog thing and the digital thing. I don't know what's next. What Fireworks? Ladies, we need to talk fireworks. A drone show, <laughs> a vulvas in the skies. You know, I can see it all. Now, let's talk pop culture because I know you are a pop culture fiend. Stop mm-hmm. Everything is all about pop culture. And talking and looking at the conversations about women in pop culture. Where do you see the fault lines emerging? Where do you see the conversation shifting? Uh, Look, I don't know. I'm really enjoying seeing television that's written, performed, directed and commissioned by women. I've just had such a longing for that for so long and that's what I want to see more of. Um, Less men in sport for me, for my taste and more women's sport in the mainstream would be part of it as well. I'm still fascinated by the story of Icelandic singer Björk saying, you know, 30 years in this business as an absolute maestro creative and people still don't believe that she's a producer. They think she's like the front girl who does cute things on a microphone and has no idea what goes on in a recording studio. And she's actually like a multi-tentacled legend in music, but people can't pay her that respect. I wonder why that might be. (laughs) Any guesses? I don't know. In other pod matters, Yumi, you have another podcast. We're allowed to mention it as well. Five Minute Foodie Fix. That's a new one. And apparently it is doing great from what I gather looking at the podcast charts. Tell us about it real quick and where we can find it. It's everywhere. So wherever you get a podcast, 5-Minute Food Fix will probably be there. Maybe not on the ABC Listen app, but everywhere else besides there. So it's the solution for me because I'm a mum with four kids. So every day I get hit up, hey, mum, what's for dinner? And I'm like, oh, my God, could you just please come up with a solution yourself? So that's my answer to that question. You don't know what to cook for dinner. You're all out of inspiration. Give me five minutes and I'll give you like a little cluster of things that you can actually achieve in your kitchen tonight. And it's kind of Beverly trying to fill that gap that exists somewhere between the person who cannot boil an egg and the master chef contestant. There's a huge wasteland there that is unaddressed of people who kind of have middling cooking abilities. They're not terrible, but they're not great either. So we're talking to that person who's got a lot of room to grow. Yumi Steins, I'm looking forward to seeing you on Celebrity MasterChef one of these days because you wear a lot of hats and being a foodie is one of them. Yumi Steins is an author, broadcaster, host of the ABC's Ladies We Need to Talk podcast. Thanks for the chat, Yumi. Thanks, Beverly. Stop everything. And finally, I'm back. Beverly has let me back onto the show in an act of reverse misandry. 
If you're all caught up with ladies we need to talk and searching for something to take you away from it all, you'll find Return Ticket in the ABC Listen app. It's an ABC podcast designed to transport you to far-flung places, both familiar and unexpected. Hosted by Jonathan Green, the podcast will explore London's underground, beyond the train line, Beijing by Bicycle and Bangkok's malls. Episode one is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's catch up now on some television that has been in our watch list lately, something that people have been talking about that we are just getting into ourselves. Ben, this is Severance, the Apple TV mm-hmm. Plus series starring Adam Scott. Adam Scott is really well known for his roles in comedies like Party Down and Parks and Rec. Severance, though, is a really different kind of show. It's extremely dark and extremely dystopian. Here's a trailer that helpfully sets up the premise. I give consent to sever my memories between my work life and my personal life. I acknowledge that once the procedure is complete, I will be unable to access my personal memories whilst on the severed floor. Say gratitude. Nor will I retain work memories. Hey. Sorry. When I return home at the end of the day. I make these statements freely. Mm, what you've heard there is very similar to the audio consent that Beverly and I gave before we started working <laughs> on Stop Everything. Look, it is a really interesting kind of dark subversion on the kind of role that we know Adam Scott from in Parks and Recreation, which is in itself also about the workplace when you yes. think about it. So you take this cheery everyman face like Adam Scott and you place him into this show which is set in a workplace called Lumen Industries. And he is a data inputter and his colleagues who work on the severance floor have all undergone this procedure that basically slices their brain in two. So whatever happens at work stays at work. Whatever happens outside of work stays there and you cannot reconcile the two. You don't remember what happens in each of those realms. On the upside, you will never have to answer a work email from home again. (laughs) So that's all about life-work balance, right? And they're taking it to the extreme, the very, very extreme. Now, I have to admit, when I first started watching the pilot episode of Severance, I had to take a step back because, you know, we've all had very vexed relationships with work over the pandemic and probably even now. And the first episode is called... (laughs) Good news about hell, you know, they're not pulling any punches with the title of the first episode, right? It opens with an image of a woman waking up in a sterile, windowless office. She doesn't know where she is. There are mysteries that need to be solved here. Well, and her name, just not to put too fine a point on it, but her name is Helly. Now, this show is like The Office meets Black Mirror. Very Mm -hmm. strong Ray Bradbury vibes. This kind of workplace speculative fiction. It's very, very ambitious, right? And, you know, I'm going to do another pun here. Severance. It's severe, mates. It's Uh very super severe, right? The stark setting, this brutalist architecture, the white corridors, the coldness of it all. I can feel the fluorescent light tubes from that show coming through my screen and frying my eyes as I watch it. You need patience for this show. And and it starts because we don't know what's going on. We're being drip-fed all the information. So, In terms of structure, it's very, very clever and smart the way they are letting us find out things in real time as the characters find out, except for, you know, Patricia Arquette's character. She's got some, there's some dark, shady stuff going on there. 
But am I going to just show my basic self and say, Ben, it's tough going for me. I don't find it relaxing. It's TV with a capital I important. I can feel how strongly people like director Ben Stiller want me to know they are making a very capital V, very capital I important show. Are you drawn to this at the end of a long day at work? I'm not saying anything. I'm not casting aspersions on the humanity or otherwise of, of ABC studios no, in which you're in currently general. working. Yeah, exactly. Now, I have to say... I feel exactly the way you do. It's why I had to take a break from the first episode because the heaviness of it, you know, I've been working in an office space outside of this show that's very, very similar to this one, right? Is this the show that I want to return to after a hard day of work? And I have to say, for all of the stuff that's oppressive about this show, there is enough in it that keeps pulling me in. The mystery of what Lumen Industries itself is, the fact that this show isn't just about the workplace, but in the first episode, we discover that it's also a show about grief, which I think is something that we all are relating to right now. We are all grieving people or lives that we've used to lead. You know, Mark, played by Adam Scott, is a character we discover who has gone through severance because he thinks that a reality where at least eight hours of the day where he doesn't have to think about his late wife is better than grieving her 24-7. I think, like, that's really interesting. This is a show that makes you think a lot of things, and it is a very kind of extreme, like they say, severance of thinking about how your work life and your mm -hmm. personal life fit in. And that question, would you do this, I guess, is the question that everybody's posing to themselves. There is still, like, so little actual pleasure in watching severance. I get all those points, but there's no pleasure I don't enjoy it. And that's why I go to the K-dramas. Crash landing on you. I'm coming to this late. I'm loving it so much. So I'll watch a little bit of Severance, and then I go and I binge my Korean dramas. And that's how I reconcile the two halves of myself, Benjamin. We have established on this show that you and I are different viewers in that you don't want to necessarily watch the heavy stuff because understandably, enjoy. absolutely, understandably, you want the solace of escape. Whereas sometimes I like to be consoled that it could be so much worse. Benjamin Law is a Greek mask of tragedy. <laughs> hey, that's my brand. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned Crash Landing on You. This is a show that you've introduced me to that I haven't started yet. But when you told me the premise of it, he laughed with the delicious audacity of it. What is the premise of this K-drama, Crash Landing on You? I'm so glad you asked because part of the pleasure of watching Korean dramas is the premise. And then when you say the premises out loud, you do realize how absurd they are. I've told you about the goblin before, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the hot goblin that you covet and worship, the handsome goblin. The hands so handsome and the Grim Reaper, oh my God. Anyway... About this show, the premise is that a very rich and beautiful daughter of a conglomerate family in Korea, these are the elites. Like if you think about the family that owns Samsung, it's kind of like a fictionalized version of that, right? She has her own very successful corporation, and part of her corporation is extreme active wear. So obviously, as the CEO of that company, what should she do? But she needs to road test this active wear by going paragliding off a cliff. She does this the day after she's announced as CEO of her father's conglomerate, which has been hugely fought for among her siblings. Like they just, you know, they're like shareholders in a corporation. They're not actual family members. Unfortunately, while she goes paragliding, a freak tornado occurs and she gets caught up in it and it pushes her into the DMZ, the demilitarized zone between South Korea and North Korea, where she is found 
by a troop of North Korean soldiers who are all like very tall, handsome, fit. None of them are malnourished. And <laughs> she, through a series of events, falls in love. It's, it's a kind of an odd couple kind of meet cute where she falls in love with an extremely handsome North Korean army captain who's highly connected. And I love it. Beverly, when I hear that, I want to laugh, but is this a comedy? Uh comedic elements in all good successful Korean rom-coms like oh they contain yeah they contain so many multitudes I mean very unrealistic uh, depictions of North Korea obviously but still within that realm of ridiculousness they do talk about real themes and you know what's real I have just found out that the romantic leads in this series Sonia Jin and Hyun Bin the paragliding heiress and the tall handsome North Korean army captain They fell in love in real life and recently got married and returned from their honeymoon in America. Okay, that is so sweet and almost leads me to believe that remarkable acts of pop culture can cure all geopolitical ills. (laughs) It's wonderful. (laughs) Hey, Beverly, you've sent me some homework. I'm now interested in crash landing on you. I am going to finish Severance and report back. But the other thing I'd like to do is set some homework for us and the listeners, because the internet is a buzz. Hey, you love homework. Don't be like that. The internet is ablaze with conversation about this new Netflix YA drama that co-stars Olivia Coleman, you know, Oscar-winning actor, and it's a coming-of-age story about queer love between two young men that was already a successful graphic novel. Everyone is posting their memes about it. Everyone is sharing their personal stories. Everyone's saying... This is the show that we wish we had when we were growing up and adults are loving it just as much as the youth. Can we watch it and report back in a couple of weeks? I shall do it. Between episodes of Crash Landing on You. (laughs) Now, it's that time of year again. The ABC's top five arts media residency program for early career researchers is open. And we're on the hunt for Australia's newest and best minds across the fields of literature, performing, visual arts, screen, music, architecture, and design. So if you're an early career PhD scholar or recent graduate with a flair and passion for communicating your work to a non-academic audience, the ABC Top 5 Arts Program is something you should apply for. It's a wonderful opportunity. Applications are open for the month of May. For more information and if you want to apply, search online, type ABC Top 5 into your browser or go to the Radio National website, scroll down, way to the bottom, there's a tile that says Top 5. Click on that. All the information is there. Stop Everything's producer is Sarah Masherman. Our sound engineer this week is Brendan O'Neill. Follow Stop Everything on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the ABC Listen app, you know what to do. Search for us tap the star make us a favorite you will never miss an episode stop everything is produced on the lands of the cooler nations and on the lands of the Turrbal and yagara people and on the lands of the muanina people from country around nipaluna you've been listening to an abc podcast Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.